You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Hey, folks. Hey, um, golly, what am I going to say here? I've got uh, one of my favorite types of people as my guest today. It's Greg Holder. Mm. And uh, the reason Greg is the kind of person I'm interested in is, is many. First of all, he's a pastor. And as my veteran listeners know, I just have a different kind of conversation when it's a fellow pastor. Because listen, folks, I know a, a lot of different people listen to this, but uh, it's probably the same in your vocation too. But no one knows what it's like to be a pastor like another pastor. So I love getting pastors on and just chatting, especially, you know, in this last year with everything we've had to deal with. I'm also interested in Greg because he's a transitional leader. He came into a young church plant. He did not plant The Crossing, which is a church in the St. Louis area. But he came in and uh, over all these years, not just growing numerically, now thousands of people, about 8,000 people, but also growing in complexity. They're a multi-campus church. I'm always fascinated by a leader when there's some numerical success, the costs that they have to pay, the regret they have, uh, the way they've had to pivot and change. Uh, Greg's also an author. He's written a couple of books, Never Settle and The Genius of One. We're going to get into those a little bit. And, and particularly ne Never Settle, it just came out in 2020. Greg's also uh, part of The Voice Bible, for those of you who love that. But also he's a co-founder of Advent Conspiracy and I guess because I'm an entrepreneurial kind of leader, I'm always have a soft spot for people who get things going, who who see a problem and and actually don't just talk about it, but they build uh, a whole thing around it. And our church has been part of Advent Conspiracy. I was telling Greg before we got on the the mics, uh, either 06 or 07, we we got into it. It must have been 07 because you guys got it started in 06, right, Greg? Yeah, but you were in early. That's impressive. Yeah, um, let's start there. Um, I'm a I'm a white suburban. So-called evangelical, I'm not sure we quite fit anymore what that means, but white suburban uh, pastor looking for something that really makes a systemic difference. And Advent Conspiracy just hit all those boxes. Why don't you tell us about that as we get going? Yeah, well, okay, so it did start back in the mid-2000s, uh, and it was a, uh, it really came out of a conversation with two other friends, pastors, uh, one in Houston, one in Portland, and at various levels, we would articulate this differently, uh, but at various levels, we would say, you know what, we got to the end of the, the Advent season, the Christmas season, however you want to call it. And not only were we fatigued, but we were wondering, did we miss it? Did our people miss it? I mean, there was certainly moments of incredible joy and celebration, but there was also this sense of, wow, I'm exhausted. And then we would hear from our folks, not only am I exhausted, but ugh. I, I went into debt and that can't be how Jesus wants me to celebrate his birth. So the three of us just said, what if we just began to organize uh, some thoughts around how can we like four tenets that could bring us back to, I wouldn't necessarily call it the simplicity of Christmas, but I would say it's the basics of Christmas. And so worship fully, spend less, uh, you know, you don't need me or your listeners don't need me to explain the vast amount of money we spend at Christmas, often money that we don't have. Yeah. Okay. So the credit card debt alone is is staggering. So spend less, give more, which sounds like a contradiction. You just said to spend less. We're saying to give more relationally. So the, we're acknowledging that this is a wonderful moment and Jesus is at the center of it and we worship him. And why wouldn't we give gifts? We see it in the narrative. 
what if we gave relational gifts? And so for us, it became uh, a moment for us to teach and challenge and encourage our folks to think differently. You said entrepreneurially. It's a great word for this. How do we think completely differently in our gift giving? So I'll give you just one example. Rather than buy Uncle Murray the 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 vest that he was never going to wear anyway, what if we gave something that celebrated relationship and connection between the two of us? And so the story I always tell was in one of the early days, there was a young man, he was in his 20s, and he gave his dad a bag of coffee beans. Okay, so that's great. His dad loves coffee. But there was a stipulation written on the on the outside of it, and it said, Dad, you're only allowed to drink this coffee with me. So every time you grind up some beans, I get to come over and I get to ask you questions about how you became the man that you were, that you are, and how how did your life live? Well, you can imagine that was a huge gift for that dad. Yeah. Well, there's all sorts of ways that we can do this. So you worship fully, spend less, give more, and then the last one is love all. What does that mean? That means with some of the money that we didn't spend on these gifts that really have little thought or meaning behind them, what if we gave that money away? What if we gave that to those that Jesus would refer to as the least of these, on the margin, the forgotten, the overlooked, the under-resourced? And so you start talking about systemic poverty. How do we, in strategic ways as churches or small groups or companies, how do we direct some of our our, our monies at Christmas towards something. So for us, and really the, the three founding churches, it was the water crisis. Yeah. And so we just began to do that. And uh, to this day, when we take our offerings at Christmas, that money leaves the building. We don't keep our Christmas offerings. That's not a way that we catch up on budget or anything else that's going on throughout the fiscal year. And it has grown, Steve, to something that's just, it's humbling and it's encouraging that there's so many people around the world that are saying, wait, we can do this. And it doesn't mean that your kids don't get gifts. It just means we're going to be more meaningful and thoughtful about them. And I'll just tell you this last thought, children get it before the adults do. (laughs) When we begin to explain this to churches, they're like, oh yeah, that's exactly right. Let's do this. Grandma, I want that one gift, but can we, can we give the rest of that money to those kids in Africa that I heard about, or to those, that family that's down the street or to whatever. And so for us, it's just been a really sweet really organic thing. There's no way you can give money to Advent Conspiracy. So we have a website, adventconspiracy.org. You can't give money to us. I mean, the the three churches set that up. We do not have that. We're the ones that are funding this and we just want to be open-handed. You can have whatever we have, go with it. There's a book out there, but even that, just go with it. Yeah. That's what I love about it. It's just a pure organic movement. We, We adopted it. Yeah. So what's that? 13, 14 years ago now. I'd, I'd be riffing. I mean, we were a church of 150 to 300 for most of my tenure. Now we're around 1,000, 1,200 or so. We've probably given away 300 to $500,000. Oh, Isn't that crazy? Brilliant. And it, it, beautiful. And it really was the double win. It, it was the intentionally giving relational time. And then it was um, blessing. In our case, it's our global partners who are on the front end of global poverty. Um, so now at our church, at least we have a shopping spree every year. People come grab a tag and it's specific things for our global partners. And it's, that's so cool. It's a beautiful thing. You know, Greg, I I think it's your most recent book, uh, never settle, right? Where you really get into some of the malaise of modern Christianity and just the idea of making a difference. And you really tackle the the cliche, like there's, there's, how do I word this? Uh, I'm famous on the podcast for wording the most convoluted question possible. So thanks for bearing with me on this. But it feels like consumer Christians, we can consume anything, even things that are good, like making a difference. Right. 
Right. Talk to us about yeah. uh, the book and and your heart behind it and what you, what the crossing is doing for the least of these in your context. Yeah. So wrote the book before the pandemic, obviously, uh, but. Uh, looking back, it's like God was preparing us for these moments where, you know, whether we like it or not, in some ways, we seemed to have disengaged from each other and and from the world. And, and some of that was required. I, I understand. I'm not getting into, you know, what should or shouldn't have happened. What I'm saying is that we all have experienced some level of isolation. And one of the things that I, that one of the points that I make early on in the book is that there's a, a sort of a natural reaction uh, for Christians, I think, and actually for anyone in this divisive world to pull back and say, wait, I'm not going to, I'm not going to risk. I don't want to risk rocking the boat. I don't want to risk being the next target on, on social media. I don't want my Facebook page to blow up with ugly things. However it is that you live your life. There are these moments where we might tend to, to retreat. We might tend to just pull back inside the castle pull up the drawbridge and whatever your your thought of the end times is, you're just going to wait until it all falls out. But I'm just going to huddle up with a few people that love me and love Jesus, and that'll be it. And that's simply not what we're created to do. And in fact, I think it's one of the reasons, Steve, that I am finding, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but I, I'm finding that even in this isolated, disconnected time, we still are dreaming and imagining and longing and planning even for ways to get back together. And I think that's because that's who we are. We're, it's baked into our DNA. We are relational animals because God has made us that way. He made us for relationship. Well, I think the other part of that is this. It's not just for us to engage each other and to enjoy relationship. I think if I could sound like a pastor now, since you said I'm a pastor, I'm going to go on ahead and go there. Um, yeah. At the very beginning of our story, however it is that you read those first 11 chapters of Genesis— we read early on that we were created in the image of God. Our creator, somehow, some way, we are made in his image. Well, if that's the case, and I believe it is, I think it's the pinnacle of the creation story. We kind of do a whole thing in one of the chapters in there, and I will not go into it now. Uh, but uh, using a an old Whitney Houston song as an explanation of the Hebrew grammar that points to what the creation song's pinnacle was. And the song, the pinnacle of the song is uh, male and female, he created them in the image of God, he created them. So you and I are made in the image of God. That means we were made to make a difference. And so there's a reason that we, at our core, we dream about, well, what can I do to make a difference? Well, what, well, what would make this different? Well, I think there's a reason that we get unsettled about things that we see or we get disturbed by this or that. We may not agree on how we are to address things, but I think at the core of it is this, this hardwiring into us that we are made to make a difference. So I kind of goof on myself and say, this is not going to be one of those cheesy self-help books. You can put your mind to it and come on, gosh darn it, let's all get out there and make a difference. That's not it. We don't need more... I think the term I used in the book was quasi-spiritual claptrap. We don't need that. But I will say this, it's in us and we're made to actually engage this world and to make a difference. And I don't think until we get our hands dirty and our hearts softened, until we open our eyes to the whole story around us, I think there is an incompleteness that many of us sense rumbling deep inside. And so this is the way forward is that let's vow that we're not going to settle. Let's look at some of these things. For the rest of the book, what we do is we just begin to talk about very practical ways that you and I can 
can take steps to re-engage the world and to actually move the needle a little bit. Because to be honest with you, there's a lot of despair right now. And I yeah. think people are buying into the lie that, well, it's just not, you know, it's just never going to get any better. And I'm not saying that we're going to make everything all go away, but I'm saying I believe we as Christians are called to get into the game, not to sit on the sidelines and say, well, isn't that a shame? I can't wait till Jesus comes back. We've been called to more. So I think one of the challenges of a local church pastor is taking a vision and then providing people a roadmap. And that's what you do in the book. Toward the end of the book, you really lay out a roadmap for people. Knowing that our primary audience is faith leaders, how have you helped your congregation walk down a path to really making a genuine impact? Yeah. Well, the first thing is we talk about it out loud and we talk about it openly and honestly. And I think it's it, our folks will hear this a version of this phrase all the time, but I think it's I think it's intellectually dishonest and emotionally unhealthy to deny the reality of what it is that we see in our world right now. So please again, do not hear me say, I hope that your listeners do not hear me say that we're just supposed to aw shucks it and say, you know what, we can do better and 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 let's just love each other a little bit better. No, we need to look at the whole story. There's a place in the book where I talk about the whole eye chart. Some of us will tend to look at the injustices of the world and the pain of the world, but we forget the other side of the eye chart. We forget the, the words of restoration, words like hope, words like yeah. forgiveness, words like, and then there are other people on the other side will say, well, yeah, we just need to be hopeful and, and, and think good about things. No, you've got to see the whole eye chart. When I begin to, to see the whole eye chart, now these problems aren't theoretical. Now, when I hear topics about online bullying, um, I've, I've got the name of a, of a seventh grader that's just getting pushed around in, in the most ungodly, and I mean that word in a very specific way, ungodly manner. Uh, when you hear about the evils of, of sex, sexual uh, harassment or, or sex trafficking or any number of other of these darknesses in the world, when I am close enough to something that there are names and faces and stories, now I'm seeing the whole eye chart. But I can't stop there. I can't just say, oh my goodness, look at how difficult and how divided and how in some cases dark the world is. I can't just do that. I must also look to and cling to the promises of God when he says, I, I really am the sovereign one and I really am still working in this world and your prayers really do still matter. And in the words of Walter Wink, you know, History does belong to the intercessors. So let's yeah. intercede. But now let's get out there and let's get our hands dirty. So we do a, we try to intentionally articulate both sides of this. Our folks are not just going to hear the let's go get them rah rah speech, nor are they going to hear, wow, the world is falling apart and going to hell in a handbasket. We need to, we need to look at the whole, uh, the whole story of reality. And I think if we live in that tension, the scriptures do a beautiful job of helping us to navigate that because we see it on every page, this, this, this tension between this is the hope of what God has made for us and this is where we need to be going and the reality of our fallen world and our own fallenness. And so I just love how honest the scriptures are. And so that's what drives us back in to the word. We begin to look at those things. And then from there, concrete, real time, let's take a risk. Steps. I mean, Advent Conspiracy would be one we took all those years ago, but concrete, real steps. Let's try something. And if it doesn't work, let's try something else. 
But I think, Steve, and this might be, uh, well, I know this is a familiar way for you to think, uh, but it, you have to get underneath this at a personal level. We cannot just talk about these things. I can't just talk about these things theoretically, and I certainly can't just talk about them from a platform or corporately. I have to begin to say, God, what is it that you're saying to me, and how am I to live intentionally? I think intentionality is a big part of this. Yeah, I love what you pointed out about you know, if you know the names and faces of people who are, it, that that changes you. Because I do think, Greg, this is like, as I, as I coach pastors and um, welcome pastors to our city, you know, we get a lot of, we're, we're an unchurched city, so we get a lot of church plants showing up. Yeah. They, they feel so overwhelmed by the task of planting a church or getting something established. I, I get it. That they don't know how to find the time to address the chronic needs of their city. And they also don't know why to do it. They, they, they don't see it as connected to the gospel. Um, it'd be really neat just to hear one or two things that your church does in your city to make a difference in the chronic needs of your city. I'll give you, I'll give you a, a couple that, are, that uh, have been important to me really for a number of years now. But we are trying our best. You know, you mentioned being a suburban church and, and a church blessed with a certain amount of resources. I, Steve, we would fall into that category with you. Yeah. Um, but what we have tried to do, and I'm so grateful that this starts at top leadership all the way through. So I'm talking about board of directors, senior leadership, pastoral staff, managers, doesn't matter. There's this sense that it cannot just be about us. I think one of our, um, one of the things that we feel really called to embody. And as soon as I say this, I, I could give you a thousand examples of how we have failed at it. Okay. So let's just say that up front. But the first book, this idea of be of the genius of one on the worst night of Jesus life, the night he's betrayed someplace between the upper room and the garden of Gethsemane, he prays in John 17, we see his longest recorded prayer. And in that prayer, he prays for himself. Many of your listeners will know this better than I, but he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for those who will come to believe, which as best I yeah. can tell is you and me. Yeah. What does he pray? Right. He doesn't pray, Father, may they be really clever. Father, may they come up with the best darn ideas for growing a ministry ever. May they be cool or popular, or may they win all the theological debates. He says, Father, may they be one as you and I are one, so that the world will know. And I know there's so much to this, and there's a complex way that we need to, to address the world. But, but at the end of the day, if we are not reflecting that Trinitarian love, that love that flows between Father, Son, and Spirit, then we're, we're, we're missing the power of what Jesus was praying for us. So that's a pretty big preamble. What we're trying to do is to reflect that oneness in a variety of ways. And one of the ways that we see that happening is to partner with other churches, hmm. particularly churches that don't 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 look like us, churches that don't have the resources like us, churches that are not in parts of town that we're in. I know that's not a new thing. I know that's not a new thing. Um, uh, churches do this all over the country. I'll just give you the example for our church in North City of St. Louis. It's it's really one of the difficult uh, parts of our town. Highest crime rates, uh, highest systemic poverty. Uh, I could just go through all sorts of things. The, the, the simplest way to explain it to folks in our, um, 
in our area is to just pick zip codes. So if you were to pick the zip code in, say, North City, uh, where where I'm now about to talk about, if you were to pick that zip code and then just go two, three miles over to a um, sort of an inner suburb, affluent suburb, and you compared the lifespans of those two zip codes, the difference, the delta is sickeningly uh, large. I mean, it's it's well over 10, 12 years difference just because of where you live, because you don't have access to healthcare, because you don't have access to any number of things, because of the high crime rate, because of any number. Of th- what are we going to do to partner with people? Well, so we've uh, come alongside several churches and, and feel blessed and honored to to mentor and to, to learn from, be mentored by many churches uh, in that area. But there's one pastor that we have developed a long-term relationship with, several pastors, but I'm, I'm going to single out Andre now. And in an entrepreneurial way, Andre, as a, as a pastor, has continued to build bridges in that small church. They have a development corporation where they are now uh, reclaiming houses from out of town slumlords who do not care yeah. at all what is happening in North St. Louis. And I won't mention the cities where they're from, but Andre does. And uh, these are, <laughs> these are people who uh, I, I just see them as robber barons. I don't know any other way to put it, Steve. And Andre is redeeming these properties through this development corporation and they're rebuilding and they're providing safe and affordable housing for these people. Right next to him was a school that uh, has been closed because the school district is is waning uh, in attendance. And this is now in the finishing stages of being a uh, certainly a place for them to do ministry. But it is also through. God's hand allowing us to help broker some relationships with one of the large healthcare providers here in St. Louis, one of the hospital systems. They're actually now, we've Andre and others have built sort of a white box for them, and they're putting in a health clinic in a part of St. Louis where there hasn't been a health clinic. Uh, Steve, I can't tell you how revolutionary this is going to be. Yeah. Open spaces for nonprofits that are going to be coming in there, a police substation so that Andre can continue to build a bridge between the local uh, police uh, officers that are there walking that beat and the people that are in his church and in his neighborhood. So Andre's doing all of that. I'm sure you're hearing that he's the hero in this. What we've been able to do is to just come alongside quietly with volunteers and with mentoring and with connecting him with uh, connections that we have and then straight up uh, our church helping to fund some of that and helping to put in some serious money into that to help a part of the city where I'll never live and a part of the city where, frankly, I won't understand fully how this is is going to work uh, and how big a difference this is going to make for a long time. Another thing that we're doing is a literacy program. This came out of the work that we're doing uh, post-Ferguson when we were um, – involved in quite a bit. Um, yeah. I, I spent some of my formative years at a, at the first Baptist church of Ferguson. And so when Ferguson began to happen, this became personal for me. And so without going into great detail, although it's in the, the genius of one book, uh, we felt called to partner with other churches and with other education school districts, let's say in North County. Uh, and we have begun a a, a partnering with them in some literacy programs where our uh, reading champions 
They have to be fully vetted. They have to be completely, uh, it's, it's all, you know, in the presence of others at the school. We're doing this as safely as possible, but our reading champions will come in. Uh, this is pre COVID, but our reading champions come in and work with these kids at the third grade level. And we're seeing reading scores go up. We're seeing kids that are beginning to, to, uh, to do better in school for a variety of reasons. We're seeing our folks that are part of these reading, uh, these literacy programs, starting to get more involved in other ways, not just with the kids, but with the teachers. And so there's a whole relational bridge that's going on there. These are some of the things that what I keep telling our folks is uh, we won't, we're not doing this. Let's put it this way. We won't see the full effect of what we're doing in certainly in my lifetime. And so what I keep telling our folks is let's do this for our children's children. And their children. I want my grandkids and my great grandkids someday. I want them to be able to look around and say, what is it that happened all those years ago in St. Louis? What was that? And honestly, it doesn't matter if great, great grandpa's name gets pulled into it. Seriously, what I want them to say is, you know what? I remember hearing that there was something that happened with these Christ followers from a variety of churches and something began to happen in St. Louis. Why couldn't it happen? It is happening. And so... You opened that can and I just kind of had to give you all of that. I'll shut up now. But those are some no, of the things I'm, we're doing. This makes me so happy, Greg, because um, we did pop a cork on some unfiltered passion. And there's so much that you said that I just want to capture before we move on, because we're going to pivot after this. But this idea, like as I'm listening to this story and the partnership and your vision for it, I just want to pull out that, you know, you have the sense, which is unfortunately an uncommon sense, to see what's already going on rather than start something. Like that's oftentimes what a suburban church will do is just get something going without ever first asking the question. And yeah, I just want to remind out, especially the young pastors that are listening, all you have to do is go find out where somebody is already doing something and learn from them. And they will keep you busy. If and and so you've you've developed these relationships. I also love the multi-generational vision you have. You know, so often I think the temptation is to do good to feel good. But you really are saying this is a 25 to 75 year Absolutely. journey. And, and that feels a lot more biblical to me. If if systemic poverty took generations to get us to this point, it's gonna take a while to 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 break some of those patterns. I'm just so encouraged to hear and, and, you know, well, I would say this, that's really insightful, first of all, because you're right. It is intergenerational. And now can I give you just one more thought here that is really, it's not specific. We're talking to young leaders and not so young leaders. It's sort of required reading of my pastoral team. And and then I would say leaders as well to read uh, Ed Friedman's A Failure of Nerve. Yeah. Um, because there's just such good, good stuff in there. But in, uh, in the genius of one, I'm, I'm remembering that, uh, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but, but Friedman's point of reference was, was the work of Murray Bowen. And so yeah. if you start to think of this systemically and you start to think of, of how Bowen even noticed that there were a similar behaviors in larger people groups and comparing them to what's happening in, in say, families that are being overwhelmed and overmatched with anxiety. Um, I, you know, when you think of a family that is going through a really dysfunctional time and they're so overwrought that they don't really even know what the next step is, or they find themselves lashing out at each other. And as soon as someone tries something, somebody else pushes them back. 
I love Bowen's insight in, in take, taking that and saying, well, that happens like society wide at times. And, yeah. and long, that was long before these last 10 years, but that's where we are, Steve. And so if yeah. we, if we can see this, like you said, as a family and as an intergenerational sort of approach to this, then we're going to need each other and we're going to need some time. And yeah. only by God's grace, do we begin to see some of this start to push. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Bowen coined the phrase societal regression. Yeah. I want to say it was in the late fifties and he was predicting by the late seventies, he, he predicted kind of a 20 year journey of societal regression. So I think when the capital siege happened, uh, he would have been somehow shocked and not surprised at all. I think that's right. Which in my opinion is how we should have all been. But then uh, Friedman, he famously once said, if you want to know if you're a good parent, watch how your grandkids raise their kids. Isn't that something? Yeah, and there's a part Isn't of that that's that unfair. And then there's yeah. a part of that that's interesting. And Greg, I want to I wanna switch topics here. I mean, sure. the, the problem with an inherently interesting human like you is we could dive, <laughs> we could stay on any of these. But I really want to get into your early leadership journey at the crossing. Sure. You came in, you were not the planter, but the mm. church was young and I, I would say fragile. If if a church plant is young and under two or three hundred, I'd always just describe it as a bit tenuous. And then over, I, I, yeah. over the years it's grown to thousands and multiple campuses. L- let's start with this question. How many years was it as a lead pastor in that environment before you stopped wondering if you were drowning? Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, I'll give you a specific example. Coming out of of, of where I came out of, just a non traditional route to um, to ministry, being a part of the church. I was a part of the church as a lay leader, as as someone who would help and fill in. I was an elder that would teach when first one and then the second of the the church planters left. I remember sitting down with the board because I told them I was feeling I was called into ministry for a variety of reasons that we won't go into, but. Um, uh, I told them, go find the pastor because I'm getting in- invitations here to to maybe go on staff at a couple of different churches. And it would be sort of as a as a pastor, but not as the lead pastor. Yeah. And it just seemed like the right thing, Steve. It was like, yeah, sure, I can go. I can be mentored. I can do this. So they were out looking and, and you know, uh, let's be honest. I don't I don't know how attractive this job opening was to many people. <laughs> yeah. For all sorts of reasons, we both felt led to say after a period of time, okay, I think we should do this and let's do this together. And that in itself was a beautiful thing because I got to be a pastor. Let me check that. I got to be a normal person before I was a pastor at this church. So I have friendships that predate anything that sounds like Pastor Greg. Um, These are people that... uh, well, they're just not that impressed with me and they're still not. And I mean that in the best of ways. They love me, but it's not like there's nothing, there's nothing there, but just a true relationship. Well, I remember at the first board meeting where we were just talking about, okay, we're going to do this. And this is pretty much a direct quote. I can tell you exactly who it was that said it. He said, Greg, before you say yes, you need to know, we're pretty sure we can pay your salary through the end of next month. So that's fragile. Um, yeah. And and we immediately said, hey, you know that that office space that we're renting for low these four staff members that that we have, we're going to start working from home. How about that? Because I think I'm I'm going to go on a out on a limb and say they would rather put food on their table than have an office. We can do this from home. And so we began to just make some of those hard decisions. We began to sort of 
pull back in on some things, but there was a defining moment, Steve. Um, it's actually in one of the books, but there's a defining moment where we were supposed to, to have a service at this, we were at this community theater at a local YMCA. I want to say it had 350 seats in it. Obviously, there's no way we were, we weren't even going to come close to filling a third of that on that particular day. I just said, could we, before everybody gets here, could we just get enough chairs and put them like on the stage? Because it was a community theater, so it had a little formal stage. Can we just have everybody on the stage? Let's not kid ourselves. We're BBs rolling around in this box. And so to just keep doing it this way, it's not going to work. And so that night, we we worshiped. I opened God's word. But then in essence, what we did was kind of a gut check of, why are we doing this? Hmm. And I began to hear stories of people saying, well, I'll tell you why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because we were in a really bad patch with our marriage until until we hung in there and you guys hung in there with us in this small group or hey, I said no to a job in another city because I believe God's going to do something here and I want to be here when it happens. Hmm. Hey, I came to Christ here and I wouldn't, I don't know what would happen if you guys hadn't been here. There are other people like me. And so it was a gut check where we looked around the room and said to each other, okay, no guarantees. But I guess this is the hill we're all going to, if we die, we'll die on this hill. Yeah. And Steve, that was a defining moment for us that we went back to for a long time. To get to your answer, from a leadership perspective, I came on in the month of August. In the month of January, I decided, like so many pastors and pastors that I had seen and admired, I figured I better do a State of the Union, kind of a, here's the here's the way we're going to do things, you know, this next coming year, kind of yep. remind folks of the vision. You're familiar with it. Yep. <laughs> On that day in January, and I told the board I was going to do this, but I said, here's where we are. We're, um, we're running X number of people and, you know, it had this really clunky PowerPoint. I think healthy things grow. I think God is calling us to, to grow, not for our sake, for his. I think we, I think we should be able to grow by 30% this year. That's a really healthy growth. But guys, hang on to your hats. That means by this time next year, we're going to be averaging 260 people. The rest of what I'm going to tell you is we've been at this a while with the church planners that did this before. We've turned the core over. If we're not running close to that or over that by this time next January, I just want to respectfully say to you, you probably should dismiss me as pastor. And I want you guys to just think about whether God is wanting this to be a church or not. There's no shame in this, but I think we should just put a mark on the wall and see what God says. So I put, kind of put myself on the, not kind of, I put myself on the hook there yeah. and said, let's see what this is. And what you can imagine the, the story is that God began to do some really sweet and beautiful things, not because of me, but because of the wonderful team that just organically amassed around me that God brought in of volunteers who were doing things that, you know, they should have been paid for. And we all know that routine, but it was just a beautiful thing that happened over that year. And we sometime... Long before that next January, we blew past that. And that was probably the time that I said, okay, I don't think we're, your word, fragile or as fragile anymore. Yeah. And here we go. Yeah. And so obviously you've navigated so much change, you know, as a church grows, uh, Tim Keller famously has a PDF that I think we've all read on how churches change as they grow and how we have to adapt as leaders. Yeah. What has been one of your more painful leadership growths or lessons through all of that change? What's been a, a difficult thing that you've had to embrace? 
not everyone signs up for the long haul, that not everyone sees the vision that you see, that not everyone agrees with the vision, that some people, as, as much as you thought you were saying it clearly, that some people came in with some preconceived notions, or maybe I didn't say it clearly enough. And somewhere along the way, there was a, a def, you know, a, a, a pinch point, a defining moment, a, a clarifying event where we said, no, this is what we're going to be about. And those people are, oh, well, then I'm out. Yeah. And your heart breaks. At least mine does. And, and I'm absolutely willing to admit that some of that has to do with my own personal insecurities of, well, wait, are you saying that's about me or, right. you know, and you just go there and it just, it breaks my heart. Um, I, I see it now, Steve. I, I know pastors see it now. I've talked to pastors all over who are saying, yeah, because of because of the way we're articulating how we're handling the pandemic or or this particular headline or or this particular struggle in our society we have folks that are saying oh so you're that kind of church i'm out of here yeah and and it 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 becomes a really painful moment where you're like oh i don't know i, I know it sounds naive but i thought we i thought we were in this for the duration together and we're simply not we're simply not and i take great comfort in looking at the scriptures my goodness, look at Paul and Barnabas. Just just look at the scriptures and the truth that is there of sharp disagreements. And and we don't even know like the words that were said between those two. Right. But but they weren't doing ministry together anymore. Now I also take great comfort that Paul mentions Barnabas later and certainly his own uh, reconciliation with John Mark. So I, I you know, I, that's those are the tough moments for me, Steve. I wish I could say I don't take those uh, so personally, but I think sometimes I still do. I actually think it helps to hear that you take it personally because I, I think mm. I think most leaders are hoping we grow out of that phase and <laughs> r- rather than just learning how to cope with it. So it raises yeah. two things, Greg. The first one is why do you think pastoring is so personal? Like we, I think we all, those of us who are lead pastors, we all struggle with identity church health, people leaving, and our well-being. It's all kind of wrapped up. What, what's your take on why that is? Yeah, that's, well, you, I think you nailed it when you mentioned the word identity. I think that is the struggle of the day. I'm talking to our pastors all the time about their own identity and what is it wrapped up in. And I don't care who we are. There are moments, and depending on your family of origin story, and depending on the time of day or what you had for breakfast that morning, you are going to be susceptible to these thoughts, to these fears, to these old tapes that play in your head. And I think identity is really at the core of it all. If I am not coming back again and again and and remembering that I am both broken and beloved, and I have to live in the tension of those, I am the broken and beloved. I'm not just the one, I'm the both. And, And from there, God's grace begins to become something that is profoundly real to me and not just something that I preach about. Yeah, which is a unique challenge for pastors is to feel, yeah. That's it, that's it, that's it. But if I forget that, if I if I drift from that, I get in trouble really quickly, really quickly. I, I think we all do. I think that's, I could give you a thousand different scenarios that spin out of us losing sight of our true identity in Christ. I, I, that's That's the... That, to me, that's at the core of it all. I don't know if that answered your question or not, but for yeah, me, it really does. That, that's what it is. The surprise for me is that it's not a one and done thing. I, uh, I, like to, I like to think that, okay, I got my identity established and now here we go. But it feels like it's just a constant uh, challenge. And 
that kind of brings up the other side of what you're talking about as, as I'm just listening to what you're saying. The challenge for pastors to find life-giving friendships. Mm-hmm. I just, I know so many pastors who are desperately lonely. What have you done that's cultivated friendships in your life? Yeah. Well, let's go on ahead and just say one more time that I think I'm at, at, at an advantage in that I had some friendships, core friendships, that predate my being the, quote, pastor here. Yeah. Uh, and and so I know full well that that's, that's just, you know, that, that puts me in a, in a, in a different category. And I'm grateful that I have those friendships. But I do think that you, you we have to get to a place uh, where we're, we're willing to risk. And that is a big deal as a pastor. And I'm not saying that we, that we are foolhardy about the people we invite into our lives because, so th- those are some of the heartaches too, right? You, you invite even, even fellow pastors on your team and fellow ministry leaders in, and, and those might be some of the deepest heartaches when it's like, golly, uh, seriously, yeah. how did, how did that happen? How are we not seeing this together? Uh, or how did, how did you make that mistake or that decision? So I'm not saying that this doesn't come with risk and I'm not saying to just you know, throw yourself open to a number of people. What I am saying is that it's essential. And so for me, it's often one of those things where it's a, I'm not saying that my wife and I have only couples friendships. I I do not, I'm not saying that. But I am saying because of her, uh, because of who she is and because of her intuition and her spiritual discernment, let's say, we can often comment to each other, in the middle of, say, a blossoming friendship, we can comment to each other about, and even say it out loud, I think we're taking another step with them. I think we're allowing them into another layer of our world or of what we're struggling with, because we don't lead with that. You know, if we're having dinner with some folks, I'm not going to say, hey, let me tell you, we don't lead with that. But I think it helps for Robin and myself to say these things out loud to each other and go, you know what, I feel like I'm I feel like I'm inviting so-and-so in at a different level. But Steve, I will go on ahead and say those kinds of friendships, I don't think you have 15 or 20 of those relationships. My prayer for a pastor is, can he have three of those relationships? I I feel blessed to have maybe a handful more than that. But I I don't want any pastor or any leader out there to go, oh man, how am I going to find a dozen people that I can do that with? You start praying that person into existence. And if you do have a a spouse that is doing this journey with you, you know, ask them, rely on them. What, what do you see? What what can we do? How do we pray this into existence? And then you start to watch this. I'm going to actually tie this back into the book and I'm not very good at this, Steve. I'm so proud of myself. Nice. Um, yeah. My assistant's going to just be really proud of me. But the whole idea of biblical hospitality, I think it's a lost art form and I think it's going to win the day, Steve. And biblical hospitality begins to create the space for different kinds of relationships to maybe take root. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, and, and I, we, we don't have to go into really all of what that means, but when you understand what biblical hospitality is, it is not, it's not cucumber sandwiches and, and you know, tea on fine china. It's, it's not that. It's, it's you're creating a space where you are welcoming someone into your life, your home, when that's possible, uh, into into your world. And the two of you are beginning to share something together. And you're beginning to see one another as image bearers of God. And you begin, you begin 
to actually see things that you wouldn't have seen in any other space. And so that alone gives a leader a chance to take some qualified risks in going, you know, so we, we do. And again, I'm saying, God, please, we get to a place where, you know, you can't have people over to your house and, and, and we are having breaking bread together and we aren't socially distanced from each other. So I'm assuming in the coming days and months that we, when we see that, I, I think there are moments that leaders, pastors, young and old can take that risk of inviting a handful of people into their space and let's see where the spirit takes them. I like it. I, it's it's interesting to in other professions. There's like a ethical line, like a therapist, for example. They right. talk about dual relationships, and I think the challenge with pastors is for people inside your church. Every relationship is at least a dual relationship. It already is, and so therefore, you know, if you're in the habit, I, I learned this lesson the hard way early. If you're in the habit of pastoring people, that's an outpouring. Right. A, friend, a friendship's a true reciprocity. And you can have friendships in your church for sure. But I think a lot of pastors are not aware of that dual relationship dynamic when they go into a church and it can, it can bite them pretty hard. It absolutely can. And I think all of those um, disclaimers need to be just revisited that I was saying, you know, you want to be healthy and you want to be careful and it is a risk. And you said it really well, but it, 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 these are such highly complex and nuanced relationships. But I do believe that God so made you as a relational being. Yeah. God didn't put you in a place to just survive and to struggle. God wants you to flourish and to thrive. And part of that will be those kinds of relationships where somebody says, this isn't transactional. I'm not yeah. here to get something from you. Yeah. I genuinely want to hear from you. Yeah, I genuinely want, and and Steve, that alone, I think that's part of what I'm saying about this idea of hospitality and this idea of us pouring into and serving one another. Those are the kinds of things where we're welcoming one another into each other's lives. We're going to need that in this next 12 to 18 months of what I'm calling a hybrid season when we're kind of trying to figure out what really is going to be the new normal? Well, there are some things we're bringing with us that we already know. And one of them is we can't do this alone. So yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing battle. You're absolutely right. friends, you know, maybe you're a first time listener. Hey, welcome. Uh, for many of you though, you've kind of been journeying with me for a while and, and you know, my mantra has been that 2021 does not have to be like 2020, but it will be like 2020. Uh, if you're not different, you, you, 2021 will not be different if you're not different. I learned this the hard way, you know, in the emergency room when I was a chaplain, uh, someone would come in on a gurney, they were in a car accident. And then a couple of minutes later, the family would come in. And of course, the person on the gurney, that, that was my congregant as a chaplain. But that was also the doctor's congregant. And my main congregation was the family. And what I learned really quickly is whatever condition the family was in before the accident was exposed by the accident. And that's my take on 2020, folks. Like men or women, 
If you're a faith leader and your soul is running on empty and you are barely getting by, 2020 didn't cause that, it exposed it. And I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I, I don't think guilt and shame have any help in this. I just say that to, to say, can we get real? And say that if you don't intentionally do something different, nothing's going to be different about 2021 for you. Uh, 2020 brought a lot of pressures to a lot of people, but it comes down to your identity in Christ, your your soul health, how intentional you are about taking care of yourself, letting God take care of you. So as many of you know, in January, I launched Capable Life. CapableLife.me, the first three letters are capable, of C-A-P. It just reminds us that it's all about learning how to be calm, aware, and present. And there's just a whole slew of tools. If you've read my book, listened to the show, Managing Leadership Anxiety, all those tools are on Capable Life. They're all in little 10-minute videos. There's a confidential forum. You would not believe what people are sharing with each other on this forum because they know it's a safe place to be real and be seen. We do monthly Zooms with coaches. We do masterclasses. And uh, you can you can join for less than a dollar a day. You can join for a month and just do a trial. I don't do free trials. Uh, I used to teach guitar. And when I gave guitar for, for free, no one practiced. And when I charged them, everyone practiced. So this may sound weird to you, but I don't do free trials. You can pay 28 bucks. You can join for a month. You can cancel if you don't like it. Now, listen, I'm the world's worst marketer because there's a lot of different tools that can help you. Capable Life is just one of them. So join Capable Life, don't join Capable Life, whatever. Just do something different. But if I can help you, capablelife.me, you can sign up for a month less than a dollar a day and and get some relief. Um, and, and so with that, Greg, we invite you back in as you bravely endure what I know you have been fearing, even leading up to the interview, <laughs> the gauntlet of anxiety questions. Um, I, I've let this interview go a little long. I've just been so fascinated by so many of the things you're saying. So I'm just going to ask you four questions as we close. Uh, here's the first one. You, you've mentioned family of origin a number of times. You've mentioned Bowen and Friedman. You're obviously well-versed in family systems theory. Uh, what family traits would you say have been an asset in your leadership? And maybe what's one that has gotten in the way? Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, I... I my father was the youngest of six children raised by um, an, a distant and violent alcoholic father. So my grandfather was that. I did not know him, but uh, and he died early in my life. But he was raised, my dad and those kids were raised by an extraordinary woman who um, died when she was 99, learned how to play the piano when she was in her 90s, learned how to fly a plane with her. One of her great grandsons wrote a poem every day. She would start every day by citing the 200 and some odd bones that we have in our body. She was absolutely convinced that you use your brain and that's how she would keep it. You know, so uh, all six of those kids were some of the most uh, thoughtful, inquisitive people I'd ever met as adults. I remember sitting around a table and going, these are the smartest people I've ever heard of. Mm. And I loved listening to them talk and debate and sometimes argue and laugh and stretch each other. And it was fascinating to me. I think one of the family traits I have is certainly not there. I, I do not have the, the, the wattage that they do uh, intellectually, but I'll say this, I have a, 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 a thirst for knowledge. I have a thirst for understanding and and learning and and picking things up. And so I think that's a family trait that has 
served me well, particularly in these weird, strange times where everything seems to be changing. I would say, here's a shocker, I would say that the underbelly of that same trait ends up getting in the way. Okay. So if, if I'm somebody who thinks that I've learned something or that I know something, there are times that I've really had to, to, to check myself and say, A, I don't know everything about that topic, and B, the opinion that I have that in my mind seems very obvious, that is rooted in some knowledge that I have, isn't all the knowledge that there is about this particular issue or this particular particular uh, topic or struggle or whatever. And so I hope, Steve, over time that I'm learning to say three really important words, which at first were incredibly painful for me to say, which is, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I, I promise you, it's a spiritual discipline for me now because of that. That's good. Great. You know, Greg, I, I think so many of us battle an inner critic and we can go into voices of condemnation. So I like to ask my guests a fill-in-the-blank question okay? to really challenge what our inner critic says versus what God says. So in your case, what if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? This is going to sound strange, but my first answer is, what if I were at least as confident about me as God is? And when I say confident, I don't mean confident in, oh, I wonder if I can do that. I mean confident in his sovereign hand guiding me through things. Mm. There's a, there's a, you know, I know that I know that I know that God is sovereign, that God is leading me. I know that I know that I know that at the end of the day, he wins and he gets the last word and that God's not finished with me. I know that. I know that I'll be able to look back on my life the way Joseph did and say, look at that. What others meant for harm, you meant for good. God, you did it. I know that in a meta way. But there are moments in the micro moments where I simply, that inner critic will will kick in and I forget. I forget to rest in that, what we were talking about earlier, that identity, that, that confidence that God is in that moment, which then leads me to either oversolve something, push in too fast, or maybe just catastrophize about something that simply will never happen at all. I wish there were times that I was as confident in how God's going to guide me through this as he is. Yeah, I, I think you gave us a gift with that answer. It may be that you answered this next question with that. Let's float <laughs> it and see. Okay. I think a lot of pastors feel a pressure because oftentimes we proclaim something we don't experience for ourselves. We kind of alluded to it in the interview with grace. You know, we proclaim grace, but we struggle. Is there a gap in your life right now between what you proclaim and what you experience? Boy, I, you're, you're actually right in that, the, you know, my first response is that it's really close to that other answer. And I would, I would put it this way. Uh, the peace that passes all understanding, the peace of God that settles in is present in my life. I want it to be as present in those high drama, high, wow, that's coming at me really fast or golly, really? I don't even know those people. Why are they saying that about me on social media or wherever? Yeah. I, I, I want to be that, and I don't want to say the word resilient because I think, I think Paul wants us to, writes about us being even more than resilient. And I think that that would be the gap on the not great days is that I know that I'm more than a conqueror. I know that nothing separates me from the love of God, but, and then that situational anxiety pushes in. 
And that's the gap. And so how do I, how do I close that gap? I don't know if you were asking that, but in my head, I'm, I'm imagining how do I close that gap? It comes back to scripture. It comes back to articulating that fear to someone. It comes back to sharing with one of those friends we were talking about earlier or Robin, my wife and saying, this sounds a little crazy, but can I just tell you something that's rumbling in my head? And I'm not asking you to solve it, but I do want you to hear me out and then speak back to me what I'm missing on this. And those kinds of things help me to kind of deal with that gap. I don't know if that's what you were asking or not. Yeah, that's good. All right. The final question is, you know, John says perfect love casts out all fear. Yeah. Um, in my study of chronic anxiety, a perfect love displaces chronic anxiety. You cannot be in the grip of love and anxiety at the same time. So one tends to push the other out. But when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Well, I could give you lots of general answers. Um, I love being surrounded by those who I feel the safest among and, and champion uh, me. And there's a deep laughter and I look around and I see the longevity of those relationships. And God reminds me that I'm not alone in this. That is often how I feel most loved. But I'll give you one really specific story without going into details. But I remember uh, it just one of those flashbacks of your life where you're like, oh, I should have done that differently. I wish I'd have done that differently. Uh, and, you know, they, they, you, you just get haunted by these things. And you're like, doggone it. I wish I should have handled that differently. Or I wish I did this or that. And, you know, it's just those tapes that you play in your head. And I remember sharing that with a uh, leader of an international organization that I'm really good friends with and just said, you know, doggone it. How do you shake these moments where it's just like, you know, you could have done that differently. And it's not, we're not talking about those kinds of mistakes. I want to be really clear. It's not that. It's just one of those things that I think the accuser will sometimes pull up and go, hey, you remember that from, you know, 40 years ago? And she's like, well, yeah, but I didn't No, that wasn't. And I just remember Mike looking at me and I, I just told him, I said, this is silly, but why, why, why can't I shake some things? And all he looked at me and he said was, Greg, and this, this is like a guy I would never have heard this word from. He goes, Greg, hmm. you are precious to me. Uh, you are a friend. You are, I mean that in the definition of the word, you are precious to me. And that doesn't even compare to what God sees in you. And we're going to keep doing this thing together. And yes, we're going to have these moments. And yes, we're going to keep learning as we go. And it was one of the, it was just this huge moment where I sensed and felt the grace of God at a depth that I, it's, it's really hard for me to describe, Steve. And it was a combination of vulnerability and God's grace just crashing in my heart. Mm -hmm. And I felt loved. Greg, thanks for coming on the show. I, I kind of knew coming in it to be a, a wide-ranging chat, but as always, just so grateful to hear the heart of a fellow pastor and to also just celebrate the good work that God's doing there in St. Louis through you and your ministry. I know you're, mm. you're recently a grandparent as well, so you've got a lot of great going on. I really appreciate you mm -hmm. sharing your heart with us today. Well, Steve, I appreciate you having me on and letting me uh, just hear from you and and have you do your thing of of just making me think and and pulling things out and uh, I hope it was helpful for your listeners and and if there's anything we can do to help or to encourage them uh, you know we would love to do that but just thank you so much for for inviting me to be with you today for more resources visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org 